All right, guys. Like Mark said, we're going to, or like uh, Isaac said, we are going to be continuing our study through Mark today. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14. Kind of the big idea that's going to hold things together today is that Jesus' commitment to us is stunning. And I actually had um, the opportunity to see just a, a tremendous example in front of my eyes this week of my wife, Melissa's commitment to our son, Jude. So a lot of you guys have been keeping up with what's been going on with Jude. And um, this week was a big week for him. He was born with a congenital heart defect. And this week we found out whether or not he had something which is called progressive vein stenosis, which basically is a terminal disease. And so he had a heart catheterization and they were trying to figure out whether or not he just had basically months to live. And so they went in to look at his veins and, um, you know, we were huddled in the hospital room together with my parents just waiting on the results. And my wife said to me, she said, if we find out that he doesn't have this disease, I'm just going to fall to my knees and just thank God uh, for, for sparing him. And um, the the procedure actually got pushed back like four hours. So you can imagine we're sitting there and, and waiting, and they said, well, there was another patient who needed to get a similar procedure done, and so you guys actually got bumped, and it's like, you're going to have to wait an extra four hours. So we wait an extra four hours, which already seems like we've been waiting forever for this, and then finally he has the procedure. Well, we knew if the procedure took one hour or less, it was either going to be really good or really bad. So it could be really good because they just go in there and they don't need to do anything. Or it could be really bad, meaning they go in there and they find out that it's inoperable. If it lasted four to six hours, it was kind of somewhere in the middle. So the, the most likely scenario was that it was going to take four to six hours because they were going to have to do um, a little bit of work in there. They come back an hour later, the nurse comes in and says, you know, the doctor's going to be right in and going to give you the results. And we were like, okay. So they come in, and he says he doesn't have progressive vein stenosis. And we're waiting for him to get wheeled back in the room and just saw my wife, as she said she would do, as we, we circled up with my parents, and she just fell to her knees and was just crying out to God and just saying, thank you so much for healing our son. I mean, we really believe it was a miracle that God... God healed him and um, caused him not to have this disease. But it really has been throughout this whole process, the last three months since our son was born, it's been both um, interesting to walk through it with the Lord from my own perspective and continue to um, try to have faith and walk with him. But maybe the most stunning thing for me has been to watch my wife's commitment to our whole family. As we have five kids at home, so she's balancing that, but also wanting to be uh, with our son Jude, it really has been amazing for me to watch her walk through that. And so I've never been more proud of my wife, Melissa, uh, than I am today on this Mother's Day and just want to publicly honor her and, and just say how thankful uh, I am for her. And I think what we're going to see in this text this morning is um, Jesus take it to the next level, to be honest. We're going to see his commitment to us his love for us in this passage is absolutely amazing and stunning. So if you would turn to Mark chapter 14 with me. 
I'm going to read the whole text, and then we'll kind of break it down into three different sections. Mark chapter 14, we're looking at verses 12 through 25. It says this, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. So what we're going to see in this passage is three different reminders that Jesus is committed to us. The first one is we're going to remember the Passover. The second is we're going to look at ourselves. And the third is we're going to celebrate the new covenant. So let's just take those one at a time. First one, we're going to remember the Passover. So again, Mark 14, 16 said this, the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover there. And so this is kind of the setting of what's going on here. The disciples were very familiar with the Passover. You remember in the passage, they actually went to Jesus and they said, where should we prepare the Passover? It was a given that during this time of the year, they would prepare the Passover. In fact, Jews had been celebrating the Passover for four or 5,000 years. And they were remembering, as Isaac said, God's amazing rescue of his people, Israel, out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. But it wasn't just that God rescued the people of Israel out of slavery that they were celebrating, it was actually how God rescued them out of slavery. Do you guys remember the story? The people of Israel were being treated harshly and horribly. And so God sent Moses in to Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And amazingly, God sent one plague after another into Egypt. Ridiculous things. The Nile River turned into blood. There were flies everywhere. There were frogs everywhere. There were locusts everywhere. The Egyptians' animals died. 
And even though these things were happening back to back to back, and it was evident that these things were happening by the hand of God, Pharaoh still would not let the Israelites go. And so God tells Moses, I've got one last plague. And this time, Pharaoh is going to let the Israelites go. And you read back through it, and it's stunning, and it's horrible, and it's amazing all at the same time. God tells the Israelites that what they are to do is they're to prepare this meal. And part of the meal is to be a lamb. They're to sacrifice this lamb, and they're to put blood over their door. And in putting blood over their door, the blood of the lamb diverts the wrath of God. In other words, the lamb is like a substitute for them. Instead of their firstborn son dying, the lamb dies instead. And so they do it. They put this blood over the door. And then the angel of death passes through all of Egypt. You're talking about millions of people. And one after another, from different houses, you begin to hear screams and shrieks as mothers are losing their sons, as God sends his angel of death through this place, and everyone loses a child except for the Israelites who have the blood of the lamb over their door. And so here's what's happening with the disciples here. They're celebrating the Passover. And as you can imagine, this is a very somber event. Although, it's four or 5,000 years later. So the idea of celebrating the Passover each and every year was whoever was leading your Passover feast, his job was to make the events of the Passover come alive for you. And so it had gone through many different iterations, and there's many different traditions, and people even celebrate the Passover down to this day. But there would basically be a few different categories of food that would be present at the Passover. So essentially, you would have the bone of a lamb, and that was to signify the lamb that was killed, whose blood you put over the doorpost. You would also have spices and salt water, and those spices were bitter, and the salt water was also bitter to the taste, and it was to remind the Israelites of the bitterness of the slavery that their ancestors had lived in before that time. There would also be an egg on the plate, and the purpose of this hard-boiled egg was basically to signify that the hotter the trials got for the Israelites, the tougher they got. So just as you heat an egg and it boils and it gets harder and harder, so the Israelites got tougher and tougher the more plagues and trials were sent their way. And then you drank lots of wine at a Passover meal. So there were four different times where you would drink a glass of wine, and that was to signify the four kind of big promises that God had given to the people of Israel. And then finally, you would have unleavened bread. If you remember, during 
the original Passover meal, God told the people of Israel there was to be no leaven in their houses. There was to be no leaven in, in their bread because they wouldn't even have time for the dough to rise because they had to get out of Egypt with haste. And it's interesting because as whoever was leading this Passover meal, Jesus in this case, would be leading, he would use the language of representation throughout the meal. So even down to this day, if there's somebody presiding over the meal, they will hold up, for example, the unleavened bread, and they will say this sentence. This is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. And so although they don't literally believe that that's a piece of bread that their fathers ate, they're saying this piece of bread represents that bread. In other words, we are one with those people. We are so identifying with them. And so as the disciples are crowded in this room, they almost feel like they're experiencing the Passover again. They feel like they're the firstborn son. They feel like, man, I know what it would have been like. I can feel what it would have been like to hear sort of this edict that if you don't put the blood of the lamb over your door, your firstborn son, which would be you, would die. So they feel this deep down in their gut. The purpose of it was really to remember the Passover and to be shocked, to be stunned, and to be amazed that God, in his grace, had saved the people of Israel from his wrath. Because after all, it wasn't that the Israelites were guilt-free and didn't deserve to be killed. It was that God had been gracious to them in rescuing them by the blood of the Lamb. So that's the setting. The disciples are shocked and they're stunned. They're taking this Passover meal. It's a sober moment. And then Jesus transitions to shock and stun them a little bit more, to cause them to ask a really searching question, to cause them to look at themselves, which I think should cause us to look at ourselves. Mark 14, 19 kind of summarizes it all. The disciples each go around the circle and they ask themselves this question. Is it I? And the context is that Jesus has just said, one of you is going to betray me. And we know in walking through the gospel of Mark, there's many moments that each of us would have wanted to run away. Because the things that Jesus had said had been really hard, and I'm sure each of the disciples had considered betraying Jesus along the way. They each believe that they would be capable of walking away from Jesus. And so when he says, one of you will betray me, all of them are like, is it me? That is, all of them, except for the one who would actually betray Jesus. We know from last week that Judas had actually put his betrayal into motion. He had already visited the religious leaders. And yet, in a parallel account in Matthew, this is what Judas said. Surely, it is not I, Rabbi. Isn't that interesting? 
the one who was going to betray Jesus didn't think it was him. And all of the disciples who would not ultimately betray Jesus thought it was them. Which I think tells us something very important about self-examination, doesn't it? It's important that we examine ourselves and realize over and over again that we are capable of anything so that we don't delude ourselves into thinking that we're better than we are and in thus doing, go down a road that we never thought we would go down. A mark of true Christianity is believing in your heart of hearts that you are capable of anything. A mark of spiritual blindness is to believe that you could never do this or that. Where are you at this morning? I think there's a couple important questions we need to ask ourselves. Am I more prone to judge others or to examine myself? We start to step down a dangerous path when we begin to look at the world out there and we think that everybody else is the problem and we are no longer examining ourselves, which is why it's important that we live in community and then we have close relationships with each other. So something I regularly do that, that I would recommend to you is just ask people around you who are gonna tell you the truth what you're really like. Or even ask them to point out sin in your life. And so the people that I love to ask this question to most are my kids because they're gonna give it to you straight, right? <laughs> so especially my six-year-old son, Luke. So for example, I will say, Luke, what are some examples of some sin in your life? And he'll say, well, you know, I don't always listen to my parents, and sometimes I do what I'm not supposed to do. You know, kids don't know they're supposed to lie in those situations, right? Make some, <laughs> make some stuff up, and so they'll just tell you what's up. And then I love to pause, and I, I love to say, hey, Luke, what are some sins that you see in dad's life? What are some things that dad does wrong? And I'll... Never forget the first time I asked him that. He just looks up at me and he goes, Dad, sometimes you get really angry. And I was like, yeah, you're right, buddy. I'm, I'm really sorry. Sometimes I just lose it and you know that and I get really mad and, and I'm sorry for that. And it's like he didn't hear me say that. And he goes, I mean, you get really angry. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, buddy, you're right, I do. I'm, I'm really sorry for that. And I think it was the third time. He's like, no, Dad, you get really... No, I don't! Do not get angry. Be quiet. Don't struggle with anger. Don't get mad. But we need to regularly be asking other people in our lives to help us see what we may not see. Or we could end up, each of us, going down a road that we never thought we would go down. Now, here's the really interesting thing. You read a little bit further, and Peter has this conversation with Jesus where Jesus says that Peter is actually going to deny him and betray him. And Peter has the same response, right? No, I'll never betray you. I'll never 
deny you. And it says that all the disciples say the exact same thing. But then, at the end, right, we know the end of the story. Jesus dies for us on the cross. He rises from death. And Judas runs away and commits suicide. And the disciples, especially, most notably Peter, right? Do you remember that scene? He jumps out of a boat and swims to Jesus because he's so glad to see him. He runs into his arms. And I think it's because in this moment, at this supper, when everyone's sobered and everyone's stunned, we see the true condition of their heart, right? There's, of course, moments where all of us are going to deny our sin, we're going to justify ourselves and all these things. But at the heart of it, the disciples believed they were sinners in need of God's grace. And Judas, he was so blind that even though he had the Son of God executed, he really didn't think he was that bad. So ultimately, it's important that we understand that we're sinners because we need grace. We need God's grace over and over again. What we see in this whole story is that it's all sort of ramping up to Jesus introducing to us what we now call the Lord's Supper. And we see it here portrayed as the new covenant. So the third thing that Jesus calls us to do so that we're stunned by his commitment to us is to celebrate the new covenant. Mark 14, 22 through 24 says this. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And you notice immediately what Jesus is doing here. Remember, the Passover has been going on for four or 5,000 years. And for four or 5,000 years, whoever's leading this Passover meal would have said, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Using this language of symbolic representation, and mid-Passover meal, after all of those things have been done, they're still reclining at the table. Jesus picks up the bread that they have been using for the Passover meal. That leaders of this meal have been declaring that this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the wilderness for 5,000 years. And Jesus says, this is my body. In one sentence, he changed the entire meaning of the bread. And then a little bit further down, he takes the same wine, the wine that they've used for the Passover meal that's meant to represent the promises of God to the people of Israel. And he says, not this is the blood of a lamb, but he says, this is my blood. In other words, in one meal, Jesus is fulfilling 5,000 years of expectation. What he is teaching in this moment 
is that the purpose of the Passover is ultimately a foreshadowing. You see, there's a greater rescue that the people of Israel needed and that all of us need, other than their rescue from physical slavery under the hand of the Egyptians. Jesus is saying here, we need to be rescued from our sin. The old covenant could never wash people from their sin. This was sort of the first sacrifice that happened. Many others would follow. And year after year, the Israelites would go to the temple and they would sacrifice. And year after year, those sacrifices would have to continue. Because by the blood of sheep and goats, no one's conscience ever got cleansed from its sin. And Jesus makes this very important statement that this is the blood of the covenant. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this word covenant, but a covenant is very different from a contract. A covenant is a commitment. The covenant that is normally celebrated in our culture is the covenant of marriage. In marriage, you don't say, if you do this, then I'll do this. We make something called vows. And this week, I met with a couple who I'm going to marry at the end of this month. And I always make it very clear that I don't like it when couples write vows. Here's why I don't like it when couples write vows. They don't write vows. They write love letters to each other. They talk about how much they care about each other and how much they love each other. And it's usually like in some kind of poetry form. And so I say, I want you to say vows to each other. And I always like to include in the vows that I send them, the traditional vows. You guys know the traditional vows, right? For richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, until death do us part. Now, if you really think about that, that's shocking, isn't it? If you make my life worse, I'm going to stick it out. If you get really, really, really sick, if you're in a coma, I'm going to stay with you. The only thing that's going to separate this covenant is death. I am 100% committed to you whether this goes well for me or whether it goes incredibly poorly for me. I don't think people realize that that's what they're saying when they get married. Then they get married and somebody's like, I'm out because you're making my life worse. You remember your vow? You make my life worse. I'm sticking it out. But here's the thing about the traditional vows. There's the possibility that you get richer. That the person that you marry is healthy. That it's better. Or that that person lives a long life and you don't have to say goodbye to them because of death. But here's what's unique about the vows that Jesus is making here. This is what he's saying about his covenant. This is absolutely stunning. This is crazy. He's saying, I am committing to this covenant even though I know it's going to make my life worse. Even though I know it's going to cost me everything. Even though I know 
It's going to be horrible for me. Here's the basis of the covenant. I'm going to die. Here's Jesus' wedding vows to you for poorer, in sickness, for worse, until it kills me. Jesus is saying to each and every one of us, this is my covenant. I take on all of your sin. I take on all of your brokenness. It makes my life worse. It kills me. It separates me from God the Father. And I'm still all in. It's been called a unilateral covenant, a covenant of promise. In other words, Jesus is saying, I give 100% of me knowing that you can do nothing. You can give 0% in accomplishing your salvation. Take, eat, take, drink. This is a new covenant. This is God's promise to you. Here's a really crazy thing. Even this, even this amazing covenant, this covenant of grace, this free grace from Jesus where he says, my life for yours, I'm all in, even though I know it's going to make my life worse. Even that is foreshadowing. Here's what I mean. This is how Jesus ends this passage. Mark 14, 25, he says, Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Yeah, you might immediately think reading that, Jesus is talking about after he dies on the cross, he's going to be in paradise and he's going to have a glass of wine. He's going to enjoy some time in the new kingdom. But we get a clue in this text what he's actually talking about. Whenever the phrase that day is used in scripture, it's always talking about the last day. It's always talking about Jesus' second coming. It's always talking about the end of history as we know it. So what Jesus is saying is, the next time I drink a glass of wine is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. So then the question becomes, What's the new heavens and the new earth going to be like? And we get a picture of it, a window into it in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. Listen to this. This is amazing. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. See, the Passover was meant to point us to the Last Supper. And the Last Supper is an invite to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be a time 
when Jesus makes everything right and everything new. The reason Jesus gave us the new covenant, he made this vow to us and then he sealed it with his blood on the cross and he rose from death is because he wants to invite us into an eternal relationship with him of which marriage is a pointer. There is this ultimate marriage coming when we will be in a relationship with Jesus forever like a bride with her husband, a relationship where he will never leave us or forsake us. There's no divorce. He will remain committed to us forever. And this will be the fulfillment of all of our longings. This is what we've been waiting for. This is home. And this is where we're headed if we trust in Christ. So some of you might be wondering, okay, how do I get in on this? It's simple. You put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your life. You say, Jesus, I need your sacrifice for me. And you say, I'm in. And by faith, you trust that Jesus has done for you what you could have never done for yourself and that he has secured your eternal life by what he did for you on the cross. This is Jesus' stunning commitment to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we're in awe of the vows that you've made to us. This is my body broken for you. This is the blood of my covenant poured out for you. And you invite us to eat and to drink, to give nothing and to gain everything from what you've done for us on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you became the lamb of God for us. You died in our place so that we can have eternal life.